Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Ask Christopher West Podcast. I am here with my beloved wife. Hi, everyone. So good to be here with you. That's my beloved wife. <laughs> In case Wendy. you didn't figure that out. My name's Wendy. Okay. Uh, so, you are just back from a trip. This is yes. getting into travel time for us. It is. Fall and spring are my busy travel times. Yeah. I was just home, just got home a few days ago from a five-day course through the TOB Institute in Cleveland. Well, outside of Cleveland. We're actually at a resort-type place in Huron, Ohio, mm-hmm. called Sawmill Creek. It was an unusual experience where we have our systems down at the retreat center here in PA where we typically do our courses. Once a year, we take the level one class on the road. Mm-hmm. We've been to Denver, Miami, Texas, St. Mindred Seminary in, uh, where was that? You Indiana. Were in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few other places we've taken the course on the road, and this time we were in Ohio. And one of the funny things was at this resort center, it wasn't so much a retreat center, as more of a, a resort place. They have a golf course and such. It's right on Lake Erie. Erie, hmm Yeah. I never even made it to the lake the whole week long. I'm so sorry. You were too busy. I was teaching all the time, and then I was just so tired, I'd come home and crash in my room. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's all these Indian themes that mm-hmm. the facility is named after and has the chandeliers were made out of antlers and uh-huh. funny things like that. Uh, but it was a great class. It was our biggest class of all time. Uh, just this past summer, we had a new record of 130 students at a TOB1. And this class was 163 students. Wow. And there were some challenges with that, but also so exciting to have just a jam-packed room of people so eager to make the journey. It was Mm -hmm. a really, really beautiful experience. And I told the students, we decided, because it was such a large group, we had everybody write their questions down rather than raising their hands during class. And I got so many questions submitted. I told the students that there's no way I was going to be able to get to them, all of them during the class, but I would bring them home and you and I could look at them on the podcast. So that's what we're doing. Yes. So this is TOB1 Cleveland. This is your podcast. Yes. And I know lots of people will benefit from these questions. So, shall we jump in? Let's do it. Okay. First question. What would you say to a priest who says, we, as in the church, need to get out of the marriage business? Yeah, this was one I actually did answer during the class, but I wanted to to put it on the podcast too, because I've heard this from, from several priests that over the years, not like, you know, several over the years. So I've interacted with thousands and thousands of priests over the years. So several out of a thousand is not a huge percentage, but enough to make me just go, what's going on when a priest thinks the church has no business in the so-called marriage business? Uh, That's what it's been called on occasion by some priests. And where are these priests coming from? Maybe it's frustration with how many people are coming to the church to get married and they don't really believe what the church believes about marriage. Maybe the priest mm-hmm. can really tell that they're just kind of going through the motions or their parents wanted them to get married in the church or something. Yeah, they, it doesn't feel as meaningful as it should be for these couples or their their focus isn't on what the church would want it to be. Right. On. So, that's, that's kind of given the benefit of the doubt to these priests. Mm-hmm. 
I'm trying to relate to where they're coming from, but I know sometimes they're coming from a place of not understanding the sacramentality of marriage. Yeah. You know, and it is one of the reasons I wanted to address this question on the podcast is because it gives us an opportunity to talk about the uniqueness of marriage as a sacrament. Think about it. Marriage is not unique to the Catholic Church. Right. It's not unique to Christianity, but baptism is unique to Christianity. Mm -hmm. The Eucharist is unique to Christianity. I think we, we could say all the sacraments except marriage are unique to Christianity. Marriage is this, it's a natural reality that every human civilization that ever flourished had some basic understanding of man, woman, child, and the commitment between the parents being called marriage. Mm-hmm. What makes that a sacrament? And I think sometimes when a priest says the church should get out of the marriage business, they're wondering that. What makes what makes marriage a sacrament? Here, John Paul II's theology of the body shines a beautiful light. Mm-hmm. John Paul II calls marriage not only one of the sec- seven sacraments, but the Primordial sacrament. Primordial. Indeed. Wendy raised her hand and wanted to answer that. Yeah. Isn't that a fun word? Oh, yeah. Primordial. What comes to your mind, Wendy, when you hear the word primordial? Oh, like deep in the recesses of the roots of all things. Yeah. Oh, I like that definition. Yeah, there it is. Deep. Say it again. Deep in the recesses of the roots of all things. Deep in the recesses, <laughs> deep in the recesses of the roots of all things. There it is. Primordial sacrament. The original, the fundamental, the deep in the roots of what? <laughs> the recesses <laughs> of all things. That's primordial. That means marriage, John Paul II says, is not only one of the seven sacraments. He calls it the model and the prototype of all the seven sacraments. And here's why. Because the goal of all seven sacraments is to unite the bridegroom with the bride Mm. so that the bride might conceive eternal life. Here's some awesome theology that always comes out at the TOB1 course. And uh, it's it's always fun as a teacher to see the light bulbs going on in people's minds and hearts when, when this is unfolded. But John Paul II says that marriage was the original light revealing the glory of God in the created world. And I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole right now, but one of the big questions in theology over the last hundred years or so is the relationship between grace and nature. It was a big deal at the Second Vatican Council. It's a big deal in in modern theology. And this question about marriage as the primordial sacrament, John Paul II brings us to some new insights about the relationship of nature and grace. I'm not going to go there, but if there are any theologians out there, please, please read Theology of the Body, Part 2, Chapter 1, to dive deeply into some of these nature and grace conversations. That's just a side note. Coming back, marriage is the original light Mm -hmm. that reveals the glory of God in the created world. But that light got fractured by original sin. How many colors do you have when you fracture light? You mean in a rainbow? Yeah. Seven. Seven. How many sacraments do we have? We have seven. We have seven. So that original light got fractured. And it's like, uh, you know, you can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I'm going to become more powerful than Mm. you can possibly imagine. The Lord lets the enemy attack his creation to a certain extent, but only 
with the view of bringing about a much greater good. So that one original light called marriage got fractured. But now we have seven lights. Now we have seven sacraments. And just as every color of the rainbow bears the essence of that original light, so too do all the seven sacraments bear the essence of marriage. The goal of which is to unite the bridegroom and the bride so that the bride might conceive eternal life. This is astounding, astounding insightful, beautiful stuff coming from JP2. Now, the rainbow stuff is something that's unfolded for me as I've taught this class over many, many years. But this also comes out. Seven is the perfect biblical number. Mm-hmm. What's the imperfect biblical number? Like of the devil, yeah. the number six. Six. Well, there's another rainbow floating around in the culture today that has gained quite the significance, and that rainbow only has six colors. Mm-hmm. And we see something here. We see something. We see um, a kind of mockery of the sacraments. That's exactly what that six-colored rainbow stands for, a mockery of the primordial sacrament. That's all the enemy can do is mock, mock the original glory, mock the original plan of God. Uh, and that's, that's very telling. And I just read this recently. I think you you were in the other room, Wendy, when I was reading this, and you heard me groan. Uh, it was, <laughs> this does sometimes this happen. This does sometimes occur. <laughs> so I've been talking about the seven-colored rainbow and the six-colored rainbow for a long time, and the significance of the two, and how the rainbow in the scripture, the seven-colored rainbow, is the sign of the covenant between heaven and earth. I'll put my bow in the sky mm-hmm. as a sign of the covenant between heaven and earth. That seven-colored rainbow which is a symbol of the seven sacraments, all coming forth from that original primordial sacrament. Those sacraments, the seven signs, the seven colors, are the sign that God wants to marry his creation. Mm -hmm. The creator wants to marry his creation. The enemy can only mock. So anyway, I was reading this article recently, Stanislaw Griegel, who was a professor of mine and was a close friend for 50 years plus of John Paul II, He was talking about this very same thing that I I have kind of stumbled on in my own teaching about the difference between the seven-colored rainbow and the six-colored rainbow. And if I had the article in front of me, I'd quote it directly. But he says something, this is a paraphrase just from memory. He says, the the seven-colored rainbow is the sign of the sacramental life that unites us with God. The six-colored rainbow is a mockery that distorts human nature and prevents us from understanding who we really are before God. He says elsewhere, Stanislaw Griegel, that when we fail to live the sexual difference rightly, eventually what happens is we fail to understand the distinction between the creator and the creature because that's what the sexual relationship is. It's a sign of the whole covenant between the creator and the creature, which brings me full circle back to the question Mm-hmm. What should we tell a priest who thinks the church should get out of the marriage business? Uh, Father, you don't understand the primordial sacrament. And by failing to understand the primordial sacrament, you're failing to understand the spousal dimension of all the sacraments. And you're failing at some level to understand the whole Christian mystery is based on the love of Christ, the bridegroom, for the church, the bride. So we have to pray for these priests who have not learned these things in seminary, have mm-hmm. not come to understand the significance of marriage, not just for married people, but for the whole church, for our whole understanding of Christology and ecclesiology 
the whole understanding of, of salvation. If we don't understand marriage, we don't understand who we are, who God is, why we're here, how we're to live, what our ultimate destiny is, because our ultimate destiny is the marriage of the Lamb. And just in a practical way, as a regular parishioner or someone who might hear that from a priest, probably all that theology might not naturally come out right in that conversation, but what might come out would be a sharing of the grace of your own sacrament as just a witness, you know, that a priest might not be getting that witness of the incredible grace of the sacrament of marriage. So, just the story of our own experience of that to encourage any priest who's, you know, discouraged by the culture and all the controversy and challenges that this is this is real. And this I just is want to important. point something out to our listeners right now. Do you notice how my wife holds my balloon? <laughs> <laughs> I float off into the clouds sometimes. And Wendy just grabs that little little string on the balloon and says, Let's come back to Earth. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> You're welcome. Can I go on to the yes, next question? Okay, so I want to give a little background to this question because I know that your students asking it were in the in your class and they probably heard you sharing different song lyrics during your class. Yes, I do tend to do that. That have had a deeper meaning in your prayer life and your personal journey than may be the obvious meaning that just listening to the song right. would communicate. So this student asked... What if the language of my students' hearts, it sounds like she's a teacher, right. is rap music riddled with vulgarity and distortions of the truth? Will they find the messages about who they truly are in that music? This is another one I did actually answer in class last week as part of a lightning round. Um, so I was trying to get through as many questions as I could in a short amount of time. So maybe I can go into a little more detail here. And we need a little background, as you were saying, Wendy. When I teach, I share some experiences from my own life that are very, very meaningful to me that I learned through my spiritual director years ago. This was probably 15 years ago when I was just getting to know my spiritual director. And he said, Christopher, tell me, tell me, you know, tell me your experience in prayer. What are some of the good things? What are some of the distractions you experience in prayer. I said, Father, you know, one of the biggest distractions I experience is I go to pray and I'm, I'm hearing music in my head all the time. And I'm trying to get the music out of my head so I can listen to what God might be trying to say to me in prayer. And he got a big smile on his face and he said, um, do you ever think that that music in your head might be the Lord trying to speak to your heart? And I said, uh, no. I said, Father, let me let me paint the picture for you. I'm talking about like music in my head, like Springsteen and U2 and stuff I grew up on, like Beatles songs or something will pop in my head. I said, I, I mean, that's just a distraction. He said, what makes you think it's a distraction? Mm. He said, is that music meaningful to you? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the stuff I grew up on. And he said, well, well, you don't think the Lord can speak the language of your heart? He said, the next time you're trying to pray and you hear songs in your head, listen to the lyrics. Uh, maybe there's a message there for you, or maybe that song is connected to some memory that you might have that the Lord wants to take you back to in prayer. Changed my life when he told me that. For years, I thought these were distractions mm -hmm. in my prayer life, and I come to learn that maybe not all the time, but a significant amount of the time when I'm hearing a song 
in my head when I'm in a place of prayer that God's really trying to speak to my heart in the language that expresses my heart. So, that's the background here. So, this teacher, fellow teacher, was saying, what if my students, the, you know, the language of their heart is this vulgar rap? Is God going to use that? So, we have to go back to a principle. I always teach it. It's absolutely critical. You've probably heard me say it various times in this podcast in the past, and it is this. This is a bedrock principle of a proper Catholic cosmology. In other words, if we don't understand this, we don't understand the proper ordering of the universe. And here it is. Very simple. The devil does not have his own clay. Mm -hmm. And that means everything that exists, God looked at it, said, behold, it's very good. Sin is the twisting or the distortion or the privation of the good. It's taking something good. And if anybody's seen me give a talk, you've probably seen me do my crumpled paper analogy where I hold up the paper and I say, this is God's original, beautiful, wonderful plan for our lives. And then I crumple the paper. I say, here's what sin did to it. Mm -hmm. The goal is not to throw the paper away. The goal is to uncrumple the paper. Yes. So... Could vulgar rap lyrics speak to somebody's heart? Could the Lord use? Well, first he's going to untwist it. Something beautiful has become something vulgar and profane. And the word profane, if you pick that word apart, it actually means in front of the temple. In other words, to profane something is to remove it from its sacred context. Everything God created has a sacred context. So here you have these vulgar lyrics in a rap song that are probably degrading women and glorifying lust. Clearly, this is a terrible, gross distortion of an original, beautiful, wonderful gift that God created called human sexuality. Why are we male and female? What's the beauty? What's the plan? What's the original Mm -hmm. design? So the vulgar lyrics are not going to become a word from God per se. But everything twisted up can be untwisted. And there is a time in my life where the music I listened to growing up either reminded me of such a a painful time when I was indulging in a very disordered life, or the lyrics themselves were so distorted, I just didn't want to listen to that music anymore, and I kind of purged my, my music collection. But as I grew... I came to a place of where these some of these songs would come back to me, but they would get untwisted. And I would hear, like, for example, here's a song from the 80s, Pour Some Sugar On Me. Okay, that, that is a song of some really twisted up sexuality where this guy just wants this girl to go crazy on him in a lustful way. But something good here has gotten twisted up. And the Song of Songs talks about the nectar and the sweetness of holy love. Mm -hmm. So when you untwist any lustful, distorted music lyric, imagine a crumpled piece of paper that's getting uncrumpled. You can discover something that's in the Song of Songs. And that pour some sugar on me has become in my own heart on occasion, sweet, beautiful, even mystical poetry that relates to the honey of the promised land, you know, flowing with milk and honey. So, everything twisted can be untwisted. Everything that has been distorted by sin, Christ came into the world to untwist, to undistort 
The word is to redeem. So basically, the theological underpinnings of this question is, is anything beyond the scope of redemption? The answer to that is no. And I think a key that has at least been a meaningful access point for us is to look at sinful desires and ask the Lord to shine light on what is the deeper holy desire that we're trying to meet in this twisted way. And I think for students to really hear the Lord speaking to their hearts through that kind of music, they need to be given a key. You yes. know, they need they need an access to say, how am I finding God here? And that's just an example. It may not be the perfect one for this particular group of students, but it's an example that for us to ask the Lord to show us, you know, what is the deeper desire that that's speaking to in my heart as God made it to be has been like a help to that uncrumpling the paper, untwisting the lyrics, that kind of thing. Yeah. The key is to learn with God's guidance and discernment how to untwist what's gotten twisted up. Mm -hmm. The twisted thing itself, like these vulgar lyrics in this rap song, Mm -hmm. that twisted thing itself is not going to speak sweetness and mystical glory to someone's heart. It's going to speak lust and perverse distortion. Mm -hmm. But Christ came into the world to redeem all of creation, and something good has gotten twisted up, and that good thing can be rediscovered, and the twisted up thing can be untwisted, and that's how we rediscover the good. Right. Next question? Yes, let's keep going. Okay. What are your thoughts on married priests? Well, it doesn't matter what my thoughts are. It doesn't? Per se. No. (laughs) But let's go, let's go right to the church's teaching. It's not impossible for a married man to be a priest. So here we have, to, we have to breathe with both lungs, as John Paul II said. And by both lungs, he means the church of the East and the church of the West. When we here in the West grow up as Roman Catholics, we tend not even to be aware of the fact that there's an Eastern Catholic church, mm-hmm. which is just as Catholic as we are. They have the same pope, the same seven sacraments, the same priesthood, the same same faith, but with a different cultural context to it. Mm-hmm. And the Eastern Catholic churches have a valid married clergy, mm-hmm. valid married priesthood. Indeed, up until about the year 1000, even the West, it was common practice to have married priests. So it's only been for the last thousand years or so that the West... And not that there, let me rewind, there was the practice of celibacy the whole way back to the earliest priests in the church that Christ established 2,000 years ago, which is still here today. So there has been, in 2,000 years, a, a vibrant tradition of married priesthood, which is still existing, and a vibrant tradition of a celibate priesthood. Mm-hmm. And the church of the West, for the last 1,000 years, has said, as a discipline, the Church of the West will choose her priests from a, normally. This is right out of the catechism, by the way. Uh, I don't have the number, but we can put it in the show notes. And we'll also, let's put in the show notes also, you can look up that article, or it's an interview from, from uh, Stanislaw Griegel that I was referencing earlier. We'll put that in the show notes too. So, here's the reference from the catechism. This is from memory, so not a direct quote, but a paraphrase. The Latin Church normally chooses her priests from among those men 
who have already discerned that they are called to celibacy. So a lot of important words there. The Latin church normally chooses, even in the Latin church, we have married priests. We have converts, say, an Anglican priest, an Episcopal priest, a Lutheran priest converts to Catholicism, can be, if they so choose, and the church... Meaning that priest was already a married priest. He in, was a married priest in his denomination. denomination. Mm-hmm. But the church would not recognize the validity of that ordination. Mm-hmm. So that priest could be now ordained as a Catholic priest in the Latin rite. So I'm sure there, there are people out there listening to the podcast that in your Latin rite, in your Roman Catholic parish, you may have a married priest. I know several throughout the country. So we have the Eastern tradition of the married priest. We even have in the West certain men who are married priests. So it's not impossible. It's not on the same par that it's not a doctrine, put it that way. It's a discipline. Whereas the non-ordination of women is a doctrine that cannot change. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the fact that priesthood is spiritual fatherhood. Mm -hmm. It's not spiritual motherhood. And this is where the difference is important in being a father and being a mother. That's where the sexual difference matters. The Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and of the bride. The priest is in persona Christi as the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. He studies in the seminary because it's the man who gives the seed that leads to new life. If we don't understand the natural reality of generation and the natural meaning of the sexual difference, we're not going to understand the supernatural meaning and significance of the sexual difference, which is revealed Mm -hmm. in the Eucharist, right? Just as... The natural purpose of the sexual difference is for holy communion and the natural generation of life. The supernatural meaning of the sexual difference is for holy communion, capital H, capital C, Mm. Eucharist, and regeneration in the spirit. So all that is doctrine flowing, that this flows from fundamental unalterable truths that only men can be ordained to be spiritual fathers. Mm Mm-hmm. But can a priest be married? The discipline of the Roman Catholic Church for the last thousand years has been to choose her priests from among those men who have already chosen celibacy as their life's calling. So that discipline could change, not involving at all a change of doctrine. Although there are valid and very good substantial reasons to choose priests from among those men who've chosen celibacy. Mm. And when people say... This would be a good change to maybe have more priests chosen from among those who are married. Do they have a a valid point? I think an argument could be made, but oftentimes, at least in our cultural context today, the push for married priests oftentimes is coming from a lack of understanding of what celibacy is Mm. And the value of celibacy, if there were to be a change in discipline, it would have to be put forth in such a way so as not to undermine the value of celibacy. Mm -hmm. Both are needed. Celibates and married people complement one another richly. And when we fail to understand and live the truth of our sexuality, both vocations suffer. This is why the sexual revolution has brought with it a collapse of both vocations. Both vocations are in crisis today because both vocations flow from the same foundation, which is a proper understanding of our creation as male and female. Mm. Celibacy 
must never be understood as a rejection or negation of human sexuality. Rather, when we understand the Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman, and it ends with the marriage of Christ and the church, and we understand that marriage is a sacrament, the primordial sacrament, which means what, Wendy? Oh, gosh, I forget. <laughs> something from the, the recesses of the roots of all of creation. Yeah, or something, yeah like that. something good and juicy like that. Yeah. When we forget that marriage is the primordial sacrament, when we forget that marriage is a foreshadow, it's not our be-all and end-all. It's just a sign in the created world of our be-all and end-all, which is the marriage of the Lamb. And celibacy for the kingdom is the choice for the marriage of the Lamb here and now. It's a declaration to the whole world that heaven is real. I think we should define this vocation. I've said this before on the podcast, I'm sure. But I think we should define celibacy, not as celibacy, but as a choice for the marriage of the Lamb, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Celibacy is a negative word. It tells us what they're not doing. Well, what are they doing? They're embracing the marriage of the Lamb. When we understand this, we understand that married people need healthy, consecrated celibates, healthy, consecrated celibates, to show them, the married couple, what their marriage is a sacrament of, mm -hmm. what their marriage is pointing toward, the marriage of the Lamb. And celibate people need the witness of healthy married couples to understand the spousal dimension of their own vocation and what it means to be faithful to that spousal reality. There's a reason we call a priest father. He's married to the church. There's a reason we call Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa. She married Christ. And the terms husband, father, brother, son, wife, mother, sister, daughter, these words apply just as much to celibacy for the kingdom as they do to marriage and family life because both vocations flow from the same reality. All that's a little bonus material because that wasn't even the question. The question was, what do I think about married priests? And I said, it doesn't matter what I think. What does the church teach? So I turned to the church teaching. And what do I think? I think what the church teaches is beautiful and right, and we need to breathe with both lungs. When we breathe with the East and the West, we see the complementarity of marriage and celibacy mm. also. Not only, I'll add this, not only does the Eastern Church have a vibrant married priesthood, mm -hmm. also has a vibrant male celibate brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And that's very important to know as well. Mm -hmm. So, could it change in the West? It could, but it would have to be done so maybe modeled after what they've learned in the East that it's not an elimination of celibacy, but priesthood is not the only way to live out celibacy. Mm -hmm. There's a vibrant way to live out celibacy that is not necessarily connected even with the priesthood, right. the brotherhood. Religious life. Religious life. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. I feel just inspired to be letting all our TOB1 students know that we are holding you in our hearts and our prayers. And also, we've talked a fair amount about priesthood in this particular podcast, that priests really need our prayers right yes, now. Yes, they so, do. In a particular way that we commit ourselves to praying for you as well. Could you uh, maybe close us out here with a prayer for priests, Wendy? Sure. Lord, thank you so much for giving your Holy Spirit to so many men who have said yes to the call to be priests. And Lord, we know it is a difficult time. We ask for a great outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon all those who are especially struggling with the challenges in their ministry, that you would affirm them, strengthen them, gift them 
console them, especially those who perhaps have been falsely accused in small and big ways because of the attack on priests right now. Lord, have mercy. Let them know that the truth sets them free. For those priests who have violated their commitments and violated others, we ask for God's justice and God's mercy. Yes. Justice and mercy have kissed. May they know deep in their hearts justice and mercy and how they come together in God's heart for them. Yes. And anybody out there who would be interested in taking a level one Theology of the Body class, I really encourage you to to consider it. Our next Theology of the Body level one class will be from November 17th to the 22nd here in Pennsylvania. And my dear brother and colleague, Bill Dunahy, who is an outstanding teacher. He just he teaches right from his heart. Beautiful, beautiful man. Please consider coming. He'll be teaching that one November 17th to the 22nd. We love doing this together as a married couple, yes. sharing these reflections, answering these questions on this podcast. Thank you so much. If you have a question you'd like us to address, you can submit it at askchristopherwest.com. We'd also ask you prayerfully to consider becoming a patron of the work of the Theology of the Body Institute. If this podcast benefits you, would you consider, please, just prayerfully, just say, Lord, are you asking me to support the Theology of the Body Institute? If you're feeling a little nudge in that direction, uh, we would be so grateful you enable us to do what we do. And for those who become patrons, we have lots of benefits, ongoing formation in the Theology of the Body, exclusive just to you guys. So take a click the link there in the show notes and take a look at how to become a patron. God bless you guys. Remember always, you are an unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.